From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Four teenagers are on a mission to improve how Black history is taught in the state's largest school district. When you're only learning bad things about yourself and you're only learning that you were oppressed and you're only learning that you were slaves, it's really detrimental. And it kind of, it makes you feel like you can't really do anything in this world. How they're educating both students and teachers and why they say this goes beyond Black history. Then, a year into the pandemic, COVID-19 has changed the way the governor and state lawmakers do their jobs. We're not necessarily in uncharted waters right now. It's just that we haven't charted them for about a century. That's from the politics team at Purplish. And a Paralympic swimmer in Salida looks forward to competing again, with prospects seeming strong for the game's return. CPR represents one of the few unbiased news sources still available to us. And in an age that we need to stay more informed than ever, it's important that news sources such as CPR still exist. The in-depth reporting is fantastic. All the different topics that are touched on in a day are things that we're interested in, and we so appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. To our membership community, thank you for supporting CPR. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News and KRCC, I'm Ryan Warner. The fight for a better Black history curriculum is not a new one, but four students are taking the cause into their own hands. They all attend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Early College in Denver. Seniors Janelle Nanga and Alana Mitchell and sophomores Donnie Austin and Kalia Yizar. The four are members of the Young Solutionists Advisory Board for Black History 365. Black History 365 is an innovative curriculum that starts in ancient Africa and carries into present day. The teen spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. I'd love for you each to tell me about your experiences learning American history in school through the years. Alana, will you start? So I never really learned any Black history, which is why I'm so adamant on getting it implemented now. Um, I only really learned about slavery and the civil rights movement and then that over and over and over again. But when I was in regular history, I only really learned about dead white men that I didn't really care about. So I never, I would say I never really had a good history education. I know for me, um, my experience was kind of similar to Alana's. I've gone to a lot of different schools, but I know that in fifth grade was the first time that I um, was learning like history And well, from what I remember, Black history, actually. And it was we only I only remember covering slavery um, during that time. And I just remember being really, really uncomfortable in the classroom, like every time we would talk about it, because I did go to a predominantly white school and was the only dark skinned girl in the class. During high school, I learned about the civil rights movement, like Lana said, and different. like really commonly known people in Black history, like MLK, Malcolm X, and Rosa Parks, pretty much. And we learned about the bus boycott, and that was pretty much it. Um, For me personally, I kind of had a similar experience to Janelle because I didn't really learn about a little bit about my own history till I reached middle school. That's just when the whole topic of slavery was introduced to me. And it wasn't 
really even go into depth about slavery. It was just telling you how Black people were the oppressed and just like about the civil rights movement, um, introducing Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, and so on. And we would only really speak about that during the month of February, which is Black History Month. And besides that, it was just like Alana said, you just got told of older white men who has created things or um, just made an impact on the world somehow. And so I wasn't really actually that involved in Black history till this current year when I actually took an African-American history class, which I was kind of confused because it's separated from all the other classes or normal history classes. And I never really like it was just a big thing for me. And I was like, well, since it's separated, I guess I'll put this time into trying to go and apply for that class. Kalia, what about your experience? Um, it's pretty similar. And I'd like to know, um, growing up, I went to a few different schools. So like I was born in Kansas and in an elementary school in Kansas. Um, I really don't remember having a very good just U.S. history education period. So when it came to like Black history, it was just a completely different experience where like once again it was mostly slavery and the civil rights movement and it was mostly taught at a, on a very minuscule level and it was just I guess I don't know if I would say I was necessarily upset about it I just didn't really understand it and then coming here to Denver it was basically the same too where like especially like what Donnie said my only like really big experience with black history before the trip was um, taking the African-American studies class at our school. And that just opened up my mind up to a lot of stuff because when your world, like when your view of history is that limited to things like slavery and the civil rights movement, being able to learn about so much more just really does open your eyes up. And I hear you each saying something that other students have criticized Denver's curriculum for, that when Black history is taught, that the focus is on oppression and not on strengths and contributions. Would y'all talk more about why that matters and more about that problem. Because when you're only learning bad things about yourself and you're only learning that you were oppressed and you're only learning that you were slaves and that stuff like that, it's really detrimental. And it kind of, it makes you feel like you can't really do anything in this world. And it makes you feel like all that you can live up to are those expectations that were placed on you. And you've all been leaders for over a year in this push for Denver Public Schools to diversify its curriculum. And DPS passed a resolution last fall. It's actually named after a pod after your podcast. It's No as in Knowledge, Justice, No Peace. And that resolution mandates that Denver schools teach the historical and contemporary contributions of Black, Indigenous, and Latino communities. Now, you're throwing your support behind the particular curriculum that you'd like DPS to adopt, and that's Black History 365. Can you describe the textbook for us, Donnie? The textbook is really amazing and it's like really big and it's called BH 365 because you have to, for Black history, you have to have it 365 days a year and that's why it's titled. And you can see that it has African colors all throughout the book and it actually has, yeah, it has QR codes. So you read the whole um page and then you could go into the QR code since it's a lot about technology you could scan it with your phone and it will go more in depth about the text and I just think it's really cool and the pictures are actually pictures that aren't even in the African-American Museum it's from Mr. Joe Freeman which is one of the authors of the book who actually has his own collection that he's been collecting on from generations and generations about pictures and it's just beyond amazing. 
And the four of you are founding members of BH365's Young Solutions Advisory Board. How did that happen? Um, so after um, we had started our podcast and everything, we were getting a lot of media attention from like different news um, stations and whatnot. And then we actually got the opportunity to be on the Today Show. And on the Today Show, Dr. Milton had seen us and he wanted to get in contact with us. And it was such a perfect alignment because when we went to the DC trip, that's when they had started curating basically the idea for the book and started um, creating it. So he was like, they, like, it's perfect. We were meant to just all work together in this company. So and this person who got in touch with you, he's the one who wrote the textbook, right? Yeah, him and Dr. Freeman are the authors of the textbook. And so they contacted Miss Grayson and Miss Grayson had basically texted us and was like, come up to the school. There's someone here that wants to meet you. And it was... Is Miss Grayson your teacher? Uh, she's our principal. Okay. Yeah. And it wasn't Dr. Milner, Dr. Freeman, but it was this um, guy named Voss and he's one of their friends and he lives out here in Colorado. So he actually brought us a copy of the textbook. And that is when they were like telling us about all of these amazing opportunities. And that's when they basically proposed that we be directors of the Student Advisory Board. Alana, you're a senior. How do you think that your time in school would have been different if you'd had a curriculum like this that centers the Black experience and Black history? I feel like if I would have had this, I could have avoided a lot of my identity issues because I grew up and I was always like, okay, People always told me, well, you're too white to be black and you're too black to be white. So what are you? Where do you fit in? And I feel like if I would have had this textbook and if I would have realized that my black is beautiful, I'm beautiful and I can do whatever I put my mind to. I feel like I would have turned out as a better person earlier and I would have had more opportunities and I would have taken my education more seriously than I had taken it. The four of you, you're on this advisory board for the curriculum. What are your goals with being on the advisory board? One of the biggest things that I look forward to is just being able to meet with student activists and other students like us across the country. Because I feel like with the experience of student activism, we can feel really separated and feel like just really disconnected. But in the opportunities I've had to like talk to other student activists across the country, it really opened up my mind that a lot of us are fighting for the same stuff. We just haven't made that connection yet. So I just can't wait to um, be able to be open to all of the amazing students who could get this book in their schools and further their own activism. For all of us, one goal that we all really have is being able to spark that same experience and excitement that we all have had learning our history on this journey and empowering students to, like Donnie said, love their skin color, embrace their their hair and everything about them and their culture and really bring out the truth because um, when it comes to our history, the truth is not told. And there's actually a lot of lies and misconceptions that come along with our history. And Clea, you mentioned that it can feel really disconnected. You can feel disconnected from other students, but I'm imagining also from other teachers. As students, what are your priorities for this curriculum that might be different than priorities that teachers have? Um, just to start, because I know we all have a lot of opinions about this book, but I know personally for me, it's way different because as a student, um, it takes a different level or just a different perception to understand what other students might like compared to teachers, especially because like generational gaps where 
a lot of the times the teachers who are teaching this black history have had the same experience that other students have where it's mostly whitewashed and it's mostly slavery or the civil rights movement. So I feel like our priorities are mostly just to cap, not only capture the attention of kids because it's kind of hard to make kids except, like excited about a textbook to begin with, but also just to make sure that's actually serving them. It's not just another, another book on the teacher's shelf that they can teach during Black History Month because it's more than that. For me personally, I think it's more about not just, I know we keep mentioning student a lot, but it's not just about students learning what's in the book. It's about teachers and other adults learning about what's in the book. I think that teachers should get the proper training, which is actually offered with the book when you get it. But um, I think teachers actually should go through training in order to learn how to properly teach their students about this book. And I just think that it's like really important that teachers are able to expand their knowledge as well, because I know that when we actually went to the African-American Museum and we presented to our teachers and introduced the idea that we want them to go to the African-American Museum as well. That's the museum in D.C., the Smithsonian? Yeah. And we wanted them to actually attend the trip, not attend the trip, but go as well. And when they got back and they presented to us what they learned, they were like, actually, we did not know some of this information. I think it's really important that we include this so students could learn it. And just seeing that they were actually learning this for the first time, too, that just means since this book goes beyond what was at the African-American History Museum, then that means teachers need to learn this as well. And I wonder how teachers, how do you think teachers who aren't Black, and specifically white teachers, can do a better job teaching Black history? Because you got into this a little bit, Donnie, that a lot of times teachers grew up with misinformation, and now they're teaching the same misinformation to their students. Um, I think that teachers, um, and uh, specifically non-teachers of color, just need to understand how this will impact students because as a teacher it really is your job to be able to serve students and empower us help us learn the correct way and you know help us form positive views on the world and how we can impact the world so it goes way beyond their own biases and they need to learn how to unlearn these biases and Understanding that it's more than just race, it's more than just skin color, and understanding that this is something that can unify us and be comfortable with being uncomfortable. People of color are oppressed in situations systemically every single day in this country, and we're uncomfortable every single day, but we have to still go on. And it's just important that regardless of how uncomfortable a teacher may be, they're still willing to facilitate these um, important, important conversations with their students in their classrooms. I think that um, teachers need to get rid of their savior complexes because Black students don't need to be saved. They need to be understood, and they need... and white teachers need to understand students as well. Um, I feel like if you don't understand and if you don't take the time to talk to your students and actually build that relationship with them, you're not gonna be able to successfully teach them in any subject. And I think that it goes with what Janelle was just saying. And I just feel like students need to be understood and conversations need to be had to make sure that students' well-beings are okay, students are doing okay at home, students are doing okay in general. Um, I just want to add to what Alana said because um, I completely agree and I also just feel like well it needs to be required that when teachers get this book they don't treat it as if it's like 
some magic, this magic token where like, I'm doing so good because I'm teaching you something you're already being taught or like, I'm going above the expectations because I'm teaching you as your teacher because that's really detrimental. And not only can that just get, that can just demean all of the history in general because if you're just teaching it to be some like sort of brownie points towards who you are as a teacher, it ruins the experience for everybody. And this goes back to what you were saying, Donnie, earlier, that there were a lot of things you didn't learn until you took a specific class for African-American history and that it was separated from everything else. What do you say to people who think that Black history is primarily for Black students? Tell me more about why it's important for everyone to learn Black history as a fundamental part of American history. Um. Really, that's pretty much a simple answer. It's just basically the fact that American history is Black history. And it's just the whole idea is centered around that you have to know Black history in order to really know the truth about how America was built. And that's really all I could say to it, because it's a fact. Tell me for the rest of you about the conversations that you're having with adults in your life about your advocacy work and balancing that on top of your schoolwork and everything else that's going on in a a year that's too crazy to even list the ways that it's been crazy? Um, like, just the year in general. Like, before anything else, it's been hectic. And I feel like just one thing that could really be pointed out is that students need support now more than ever. Students have always needed support because high school, middle school, school in general is just hard. But especially right now, students just need support. And I know for me, with my family, they definitely supported me with like, you know, my mom driving me to the school or to our board meetings to um, just talk and being there for us and supporting us and understanding the commitments that come with all of this work. They've definitely helped me a lot with that. Student activists in general, it's kind of, it can be kind of hard to like, you know, keep up with your school life and your social life and then all of your activist work. So it has been a little bit hectic, but I feel like the work we're doing in particular is really important. Cause like, I know all of us here, we have siblings I have a little sister who's going to my school in sixth grade. And I have a little brother who's probably going to go to the school or school around here once he gets older. And the work we're doing is really for not only the kids who are in school right now, but for the future kids who are going to grow up with this Black history. For me personally, the work that I'm doing right now is definitely to just make that experience better for them once they grow up. Before we go, I wanted to ask each of you to share something from BH365. Maybe that surprised you when you read it for the first time. I think what surprised me was the section in the book that says say their names because you've never seen that in a history book before. Nobody ever talks about that kind of stuff. And so when I saw it and I saw that it was recent names that just happened this year, I found it so shocking and so amazing. And I just thought that it was great that they had that because they need to be said, the names need to be said and history needs to be taught and police brutality needs to be talked about more than just on Instagram or on Snapchat or something. For me, I know one part that really surprised me, to be honest, was that uh, I really want during one of the professional development sessions that they had with some of the teachers and people in our community at our school. Um, we've read a part of the book that talked about how insurance companies used to profit off of slaves. And um, I think one thing that a lot of people don't know is that like, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, um, Lincoln personally compensated all the slave owners who lost their slaves. Like, like once you really let that sink in, Lincoln paid slave owners because they lost slaves. 
And then like, so you could actually like the same way you could put an insurance policy on your car. And if you crashed your car, you would get money. Or if your house burned down, if your slave died or if you killed them or if something happened to them, these slave owners would get paid for that. And it's just crazy. I think one thing for me was just really seeing how updated the book is. And you could tell they've been working really hard on it because I know one thing that was like really cool is they actually had George Floyd's movement and they had Breonna Taylor's movement. And it was like, they had like a whole like small, like not small, but they had a couple of pages about it and just explaining the movement and why it was so important. And just seeing that they did that in the book is just really amazing. Um, I know for me, this is actually around the first time um, explained the book. I saw a unit basically talking about Black wealth and just like economic status as it relates to Black history. And I feel like that is so amazing. And just for that to even be a topic to be able to be talked about in school is so important and it's something that's not talked about at all and it's really crazy and it's also something that's really detrimental to our community because this is something like the black community does not handle money well because they're we're not taught how to handle money we're not taught how to maintain it it's not something like we were never even meant to be in positions of wealth and you know be able to have things like generational wealth that you see in other communities like it's very rare for um black families to have generational wealth passed down and that's something that's like an idea and a construct that should not that that should not continue to be passed down and I feel like because of units like that and because of the fact that we are introducing topics like that it that's something that's going to change and I think that's so important and it's really it was really amazing to me. That's really excellent. I want to thank you all so much for having this conversation. You all have such good perspective. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Thank you. My colleague Avery Lill speaking with seniors Janelle Nanga and Alana Mitchell and sophomores Donnie Austin and Kalia Yizar. They attend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Early College in Denver, and they're members of the Young Solutionists Advisory Board for Black History 365. Last fall, Denver Public Schools passed a resolution requiring that the historical and contemporary contributions of Black, Indigenous, and Latino communities be taught. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how the pandemic has changed and challenged both the governor and state lawmakers. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Do you have an instrument that's sitting in a closet somewhere that hasn't been used for years? Why not give that instrument new life? Get it out from under your stairs and get it into somebody's hands who's going to use it, learn from it, and make a difference in their lives. The Bringing Music to Life Instrument Drive is going on through March 21st. You can impact a student in Colorado with your instrument donation. Find out more at bringingmusictolife.org. As Colorado marks the anniversary of its first known COVID case, 
The pandemic has changed how the governor and state lawmakers operate, including the use of executive power to fight the virus. Let's check in with the team at Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Here are public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland. And the pandemic has thrust governors across the country into the spotlight and really at the forefront of managing this crisis. So the first known case of COVID-19 in Colorado was March 5th. And then about a week later, schools started closing. On March 14th, Governor Polis shut down the ski areas. Towards the end of March, he issued a stay-at-home order. We're issuing the stay-at-home order to save lives. To save lives. Could be your aunt or your uncle, could be your parent, could be your grandparent, could be your own life. And then in early April, we had Polis urging everyone to wear a mask at all times outside their homes. So get out those old t-shirts, you know, and be creative about making that into a mask. Cover your mouth, cover your uh, nose, and make sure you can breathe easily. through. You know, it's kind of easy to forget because we've been in this kind of societal semi-lockdown for so long. When it was first coming, it, it felt like just hitting the brakes on society. Like everything suddenly coming to this screeching halt in a way that was, was totally amazing at the time. Right. And I don't know what it says about me, but when the ski areas closed, that was my big signal. Like, oh, hmm. this is getting real. I was in Steamboat Springs at the time. I just remember the grocery store suddenly being ransacked. The ski mountain utterly shutting down. Wow. I, I skied the last day of the season, as it turned out, and I was just the only one on the mountain. And I even got to break the news to, it was terrible, to this young couple saying, oh, hey, did you guys hear the whole mountain just shut down uh, in the middle of your like engagement vacation? Oh, wow. So, yeah, truly surreal. Well, I, I agree with the ski area announcement. Even if you don't ski, we were at the height of the winter tourism season, March, spring break. Yeah. Skiing is iconic for this state. So I think oh, people were shocked when that happened. And, you know, throughout all this, these days and weeks of really sudden and dramatic changes, Governor Polis was the voice and the face of what was really happening. Here in Colorado, moments ago, I signed a letter to the president asking him to declare a major disaster area for the state. He told us the numbers. 612 people are currently hospitalized. 77 deaths, our hearts go out to the families. He told us what was changing. Uh, I know that there's families hurting, uh, and it brings a sense of comfort that we're going through this together. We'll get through this together. We're doing the right. Bento, you got to spend some time with him behind the scenes back then at the beginning of the outbreak, and then you actually repeated that by spending a bunch more time with him very recently as well. So one year later, what was different when you spent time with him this time around? Well, in the spring, it was all by phone. Conference calls in his office at the state capitol, in his chief of staff's office. And now it's pretty much all Zoom from his home in Boulder. Hmm. He does not work out of the capitol. He comes about twice a week to the governor's mansion, which is just a few blocks from the state capitol. And it's where he has his media briefings. So the governor, like many people, has transitioned to living that Zoom life. But what I'm really curious about is how is this guy leading Colorado now, like one year into this pandemic, what is his style? How is he getting things done, especially like, you know, even within the office of the governor? Right. Well, he says his days start early and end very late, which I think we would expect. 
Um, And his normal business hours, I think, have been pretty consistent since the start of the pandemic, which is full of briefings and planning calls and meetings. And then evenings are when he says he really has time to read things like scientific journals and studies and think deeply and, and make decisions. And he said it's when he goes through all his different graphs and charts and spreadsheets and provide comments. That is a huge part of how Governor Polis has described himself, the big data guy, the chart guy. I'm curious, though, what have you learned about his leadership style, especially behind closed doors? How does he actually get stuff done? I mean, from what I've seen behind the scenes and observing him in meetings, he doesn't come across much different than the person Coloradans see through the briefing room camera. So he's detail-oriented, numbers-focused. His meetings you, with his staff, they start like right on time and end to the minute on time. <laughs> really? You know, people have repeatedly said he's extremely calm. Hmm. And his chief of staff, Lisa Kaufman, she's his longest serving employee. She's the person that colleagues say knows him better than almost anyone, his most trusted political advisor. And she really said he is extremely calm and rational. And it, it can even be maddening at times. So he's always on the more optimistic side of any scenario. He always sees the glass half full. But he's also very open and really welcomes debate. So if he's a glass half full guy, are there glass half empty people on his staff? (laughs) Did you get the sense that everyone's always in total agreement? Well, I didn't actually ask anyone like, hey, are you a glass half empty type of person? But um, his chief of staff said in late March when Polis issued this very restrictive stay-at-home order. For her, that was the toughest decision the administration has had to make because they're weighing protecting public health and saving lives against the damage to the economy and people's emotional well-being. And some of his senior staff said they did not want Polis to lift that order as soon as Polis did. And Kaufman said the governor kept telling them, like, look, this is not sustainable. That's interesting because Polis has seemed to me to kind of triangulate and put himself in the middle of the pack of what other governors are doing. I remember, you know, it took a little pressure. It took some other states instituting face mask mandates before Polis did. Uh, Is that an impression that you share that he kind of floats around the middle? I think so a little bit. I mean, what they said is he'll make his decision based on data. So for the stay at home order, his staff said, He saw data that showed proper social distancing would have the same effect as the stay-at-home order. So that's when he lifted the stay-at-home order. And Kaufman said, you cannot make an emotional plea to the governor. You know, there's times in which team members are scared and emotional during uh, periods of this. And the governor is really, you know, mission-focused and data-driven. And so needing to see the data before making a decision is a constant But he does make decisions quickly, and it's a pace that took some getting used to for some of his staff. So Stan Hilke heads the Colorado Department of Public Safety, and he said he's worked for a lot of different leaders. Mm. And he said that Polis's decisiveness and this rapid decision-making made him uncomfortable because he's someone who wants to be very critically thinking about stuff. Well, that's a comment, and sometimes it's a complaint that we've heard from a number of different leaders because the uh, the polis orders can come quick, and you know he doesn't always give a ton of notice to everybody about what he's going to do next. I, I would just will really quickly add that Hilke said he does feel grateful for that decisiveness now because with the pandemic, a lot of the data on infection rates was lagged by about two weeks, and so when new information came in, you were Hilke said you were kind of behind already. So he thinks polis had to act quickly. 
Well, Governor Polis has used that decisiveness to issue a ton of executive orders, hundreds if you include all the extensions and amendments, which is kind of interesting from a governor who politically talks about not really wanting to embrace that kind of executive power that much. Yeah, he actually has that kind of libertarian streak. And Polis told me he believes persuasion may be more important to taming the pandemic than concrete policies. Mm. So all of these scores of broadcast briefings and interviews, yes, that's his chance to provide hard facts and cajole and explain and then even at times browbeat the public into doing what he hopes they will do. But please don't be stupid. Engage in social distancing. The new guidance is no more than 10 and up. You know, he also added that the policies matter a bit and people focus so much on those. Like, do you tell people they have to wear masks? Do you close down? But he said, what really matters is, are people wearing masks? Well, I'm of two minds about that, because I think it is true that, you know, at least in the U.S., you can't police people into to wearing a mask. But the governor has exercised a lot of the state's power over, like, businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not just suggesting that restaurants not operate at full capacity. They, they'll lose their license. So he's really used a combination of the two. The messaging, yes, but also his executive power. Yes, definitely. So after one year of Polis's pandemic leadership, uh, it seems to me as if there's kind of two angles of criticism of the governor that have developed. The first one uh, comes from some of his colleagues on the left, as well as uh, local health officials, local government. And it's this idea that despite his constantly talking about data and and how transparent everything's going to be, sometimes he, he's kind of waffled on stuff, it seems, or at least changed the way that he's approaching things. The vaccine timelines have been rearranged a bunch. And also the, the big one that sticks out to me was the the dial that was supposed to determine what restrictions would be in place for different areas was kind of wholesale rewritten so that a bunch of areas that were under heavier restrictions or should have been suddenly qualified for lighter restrictions. The governor addressed that a little bit. He, you know, his staff said that so much new information is coming in at all times and they're updating things. They always want to have more information than they do have. And then for a while, a lot of, you know, states are competing against each other and there wasn't a lot of coordination they felt with the federal government just trying to get basic things. So they say it's a fluid situation. And so that's why things have to be tweaked. Yeah. And they've also spoken to some of the complaints from like local health departments who want more heads up on things. Uh, The governor's office has said they basically want to act decisively and not have news leak out a bunch ahead of time. They say they're just trying to keep information uniform, basically. Then on the other side, there is the critique, the idea that he's basically been overreaching and overusing executive power. And before we launch into that, I wanted to step back for some perspective. I recently interviewed historian Derek Everett, perfect person for this. He studies the Colorado State Capitol, and he's actually been looking into how uh, governors have responded to different emergencies, especially the pandemic a century ago. What he basically said was that Polis has used executive power in a way that we've not really seen in Colorado before. Hmm. The situation that he's responding to is one that Colorado officials really haven't faced in a century. There's not been anything on this statewide level of, of crisis, of public health, 
since the influenza epidemic. You know, governors are used to dealing with things like floods or wildfires or, or natural disasters like that that are usually focused in a specific area. And there's set patterns of, you know, who helps out. The National Guard does this and local communities can be organized to do that. We're not necessarily in uncharted waters right now. It's just that we haven't charted them for about a century. Yeah, I think so many people have said this is unprecedented. A governor's never done this before. But it's nice to actually hear that from someone who studies this kind of thing. Well, with that unprecedented crisis, of course, and and that broad use of executive power has come, like we mentioned, some of that backlash. Right. Uh, Republicans and conservatives hosted anti-lockdown protests. And since then, Republican lawmakers have pushed back against Polis's broad use of this executive authority. And they've argued that the legislature should take a bigger role in future emergencies. We have a legislative session that meets four months out of the year. And one idea being floated is that if there is an extended emergency, it could trigger lawmakers returning to the Capitol. So they could be working with the governor to to pass legislation or to decide where money is going to be spent. Yeah, it's been such a long emergency that it's bridged between two different sessions, which really is not how emergencies usually happen. Uh, This is something, though, this pushback that we're seeing across the country. There's more than 30 different states where there have been legislative efforts to try to rein in the executive. Uh, A lot of that's driven by conservative legislatures fighting back against Democratic governors, Mm -hmm. like in Wisconsin, where the legislature actually voted to repeal the mask mandate, only to have the governor go and reissue it. And then uh, it's also played out in the courts as well, like in Michigan, where the state Supreme Court's really giving Governor Gretchen Whitmer a lot of trouble. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's going to be different in those states that have single-party control like Colorado. Hmm. Um, New York is kind of an exception to that right now, um, where the Democratic legislature is moving to rein in some of the powers of Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo and let them have input on decisions. But that only came about after allegations that Cuomo covered up nursing home deaths. And even then, the restrictions that they're talking about putting on Cuomo aren't very substantial. It's basically saying that the legislature is going to get more input on decisions, and we all know the input doesn't add up to a whole lot of power. Regardless, I don't really see that coming up in a serious way to challenge Polis, at least during this pandemic. But what do you say about what's next? Well, he definitely wants to get through this pandemic. We're, We're not through it yet, obviously. I asked him what he remembers most from the last year. And he actually said he doesn't want to remember it at all. This is a year that everybody, especially governors, can't wait to forget. Just a horrible year. And this kind of illustrates the point. I was with Polis at a vaccine clinic and volunteers there had created a pinata and it was in the shape of the COVID-19 virus. (laughs) And at one point they handed Polis this large mock vaccine needle and he took it and he was just (laughs) whacking the pinata again and again and again and everyone was laughing. (laughs) One of his staffers had to tap him on the arm and just kind of pull him away. (laughs) I'm sorry, that might be one of the most relatable things I've ever heard about Polis. I would love to just 
beat the living daylights out of a coronavirus pinata. <laughs> but surely he doesn't want to forget everything. We, we actually learned that he is engaged, right? That's right. He got engaged to his longtime partner, Marlon Reese. After both Marlon and Polis had COVID-19, there was a point where Marlon's condition was deteriorating. And eventually he did go into the hospital for a couple of days and, and came back and was fine. But it was at that moment when Polis was getting ready to drive him to the hospital that he proposed. I've been thinking about it for a while. I'd ordered the, the rings with an inscription from Isaiah and, and had them, you know, hidden and ready to go. And I knew he'd probably get better, but obviously you never know in that situation. I thought now's a good time. Polis also mentioned some other good things that have come out of the pandemic. And he said that there's been a lot of efficiencies with people working from home and telecommuting, and that he thinks people really did find creative ways to stay connected to loved ones with technology. And he just celebrated uh, his cousin's bar mitzvah virtually. And obviously, the governor, like everyone, is looking forward to seeing family in person again and, and not being so technology driven in our personal lives. Well, I know we've talked about a lot of the newsy angles on the way that the pandemic has changed and surprised us all. But uh, I know that both of us in our reporting for this episode have come across some really unique moments and facts that made us stop and say, wait, what? I don't know if it's because we have these moments on the podcast, but I, I literally, for this moment, as it was happening in real time, did say in my head, wait, what? Seriously? <laughs> I was with the governor. We were in this conference room in the governor's mansion where he prepares for his press conferences. And as we're walking out, he said, oh, I'll show you my kitchen. It's just this tiny little kitchen off the conference room. And he opens his fridge and, you know, he's got some sodas and just a few things in there. And then he shows me there's like five beers. <laughs> and he said, this is leftover from the previous governor. <laughs> um, because John Hickenlooper, as people know, brew pub owner, enjoys beer. Yeah. And Pola said, it's still here because I don't touch it. And he's going to give it to the next governor. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be any good then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what, I mean... He he wasn't sure if beer lasted that long. You know, he only drinks a couple times a year, so it's just still sitting in the fridge. Wow. Well, my wait what moment came up uh, again in my conversation with historian Derek Everett, and we were talking about how the legislature and the governor in modern times are handling the pandemic versus how it happened back then. A hundred years ago, the state legislature only met every other year, and they did convene in January of 1919, right in the midst of the influenza epidemic, there was no restrictions. There weren't any requirements for masks or barriers between the legislative desks or anything. And not only do they come into session, but they decide they need to have a joint session with Wyoming. So Wyoming's entire legislature Gosh. gets on, on their Model Ts or whatever they were driving back then, their covered wagons, horses and donkeys, they come down and they all gather together just to have the biggest legislative super spreader event that you could possibly conceive. Public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland with the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear this and other episodes at Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's looking more and more like the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics will happen this year, despite calls from many in Japan to cancel the Games. 
Colorado Springs is home to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and this state is full of elite athletes training for their moment on the world stage. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce takes us to the mountain town of Salida for a typical workout of 2016 Paralympic silver medal swimmer Sophia Herzog. Uh, It's 6 o'clock p.m., and we are heading into the Salida Hot Springs Aquatic Center for my second practice of the night. How many times a week do you come to this place? I come here 10 times a week. 23-year-old Sophia Herzog has a form of dwarfism. Since I'm only four feet tall, my mom thought it was essential that I knew basic water safety. Good call, Mom. Your daughter swims professionally now, six days a week. We get our equipment, whatever is going to be needed for that night. Could be flippers or kickboards, paddles, snorkels. It just depends. We put our caps and goggles on, and then we hear what the warm-up is. So right now we're in a really hard part of her training where we have to break her muscles down. Herzog's coach, Wendy Gorey, says this most brutal training period will go on for months yet, lessening only a couple weeks before she flies to Tokyo. So that when she hits the games, hopefully she'll be at her peak performance. The postponement of the 2020 Tokyo Games due to COVID shocked elite athletes worldwide. Some were forced to give up their Olympic dream. Best case scenario, it meant another year of grueling work to prepare under historic uncertainty. Gori also coaches the Salida High School swim team. Herzog swims with the varsity girls, and she readily admits they are faster than her. She also knows some of the women in her Paralympic division are just as fast as these high school girls. These girls are my competition, so I need to keep up with them. They're the standard that I need to hold for myself. She's really motivated and her work ethic is is awesome. Sophomore varsity swimmer, Ember Hill. She never takes breaks. I mean, she's here at every practice. Sophie, you're gliding. No gliding. Drive Coach Gorey puts the high schoolers and Herzog through the same workouts, shouting and whistling to be heard underwater. Herzog starts out sluggish. I'm actually a pretty slow warmer-upper. The first 500 is, is pretty crummy and it doesn't feel great. Though at some point she says her body just sort of snaps into action. And then all of a sudden I can hold the time pretty easily. And consistently, breaststroke, backstroke, freestyle. Herzog looks up to the large clock on the pool deck whenever she can. Sophie was devastated when they canceled it last summer because she was ready to go. Gori says in place of Tokyo 2020, it was months-long pool closures, fighting for pandemic-limited swim slots. It's been such a weird dynamic, and I'm sure it's been playing terrible head games with all of them. All the more important, then, for Herzog to stay laser-focused on Coach Gorey's directions as the evening workout reaches its peak. Remember, four dolphin kicks on flip turns. Because I'll be tired and I'll want to have come up for air. Is my elbow at the right angle? Is my hand at the right angle? Watching the clock grinding to keep up with her able-bodied teammates. I actually really enjoy that stress. It's a 
good stress for me now. Ready, go! And it's about the best preparation she's going to get. She has not had an official competition now for more than a year. For athletes, they have to compete to get better. And she, she needs the competition, so I'm, I'm entering her in some of these high school meets because there's nowhere else for her to compete. So, last month, Herzog entered the Salida High Swim Meet as an exhibition swimmer. And she broke two American Paralympic records. That's, well, that's as good a sign as you could hope for. In Salida, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Finally today, what's billed as the largest South Asian classical music festival continues this weekend. The Colorado Fine Arts Association is based in Broomfield and promotes music that originated in the Indian subcontinent. One of their main goals, to expose American youth to this fine art. The virtual event features 50 hours of programming and it's free. On Saturday, flutist J.B. Sruti Sagar performs. Heard in this recording with some percussion, he plays the Carnatic flute, which is made of bamboo, one of India's oldest instruments. The 14th annual South Asian Classical Music Festival continues this Friday. Details at rmtu.org. And that's Colorado Matters, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.